Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. Sean Stewart, welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Hey, guys. Hey, great to connect, guys. Yeah, another busy week. You know, when we started this podcast, what is it, like almost a year ago, I thought to myself, I don't know, Mission Impossible, uh, the three Don Quixotes riding at windmills, like who, what are we going to talk about when it comes to a podcast that's trying to look at the intersections of public policy, national affairs, political economy, but Wow. Um, has the news cycle ever delivered over the last couple of weeks? And this week is no exception. So the first half of the show, guys, we got to talk about the federal public service workers strike. And then in the back half of the show, a topic that we've always been interested in the hub subsidies, public subsidies to large multinationals. Um, does this work? Is it in the national interest? Uh, what are we getting ourselves into? $13 billion. That's right. $13 billion going to uh, VW for a new battery plant in St. Thomas, Ontario. We'll unpack all of that for you in the second half of the show. I want to come to you, Stuart. First, you are our man in Ottawa. I understand you've got some on-the-ground reporting to share with us, something new that you haven't seen as a result of this strike, Stuart, going right back to the beginning of the pandemic. So pray tell. Yeah, actually, I accidentally did some on-the-ground reporting on Wednesday. I had an <laughs> appointment at the eye doctor, and it was on the worst day because we commuted in, and I was like, why is there so much traffic? There's The roads were crazy. And then I realized all of the government workers were commuting to their picket lines. So uh, we were caught up in that. And I actually did get to stroll around downtown and there is a Ottawa Citizen piece, which I recommend reading. It is written really well. It's it's worth the read uh, by Bruce Deachman um, about what it's like down there. And I had a very similar experience. It was very strange. It was probably the most disaffected I've ever seen picket line people. And this was the first day. So you would think the energy would be high in the first hours of the first day of the picket lines, but it was strange. There was people just kind of milling around. I tried to have a couple of meetings downtown just because I was making use of my time, but the coffee shops were just slammed. Like you couldn't get a seat. So <laughs> I was like, wow, they take long coffee breaks even when they're striking too. It's crazy. Um, so the strange thing was that, um, you know, it's probably the best downtown Ottawa's been in a few years like it actually was kind of hopping and the energy was kind of good just to have people down there so uh there was an upside but it was a strange strange situation and the crux of that citizen piece is also something i think we're, we're noticing which is that um bruce was interviewing um protesters and they were saying yeah like people don't like us people are yelling at us i actually saw some garbage men and some uh construction guys honking in support of the protest which kind of surprised me it's kind of a blue collar uh vibe to this sometimes and i think that's also something maybe you know the average canadian wouldn't know is that these aren't you know bureaucrats these are you know maintenance workers um they're doing immigration processing stuff like that so there's a very wide variety of of people who are protesting right now 
Okay, Sean, let me come to you uh, for the bigger picture here. What we're looking at uh, is a not insignificant gap between the government's offer around 2% and change a year, well below the rate of inflation, versus the union. Um, it's, you know, pick your number, some are as high as 20 odd percent over the next uh, three years, depending on the department. Uh, there's suggestion of like a blended rate in the 13% that's just income, but not benefits. If you add benefits on top of that, and maybe most controversially of all, Sean, there's a, a desire here on the part of Peace Act, the federal employee union for a kind of right to work from home. And we know that Ottawa has really struggled. The senior civil service has really struggled even to get workers back one, two days a week now enshrining possibly a right to work from home. What do you make of all this? And what does it say, Sean, to the kind of rational calculus on the part of the rest of the economy, all the other employees that are out there thinking about careers, thinking about the private sector versus the public sector? I got to say, Sean, I'm worried here that we're losing any kind of rational argument for anyone to stay in private sector employment in the higher productivity parts of the economy yes. when just demonstrably it's not even that the advantages aren't there it's that the advantages are now in the public sector of the economy for you as a worker if you're going to make a rational choice frankly about your own economic interests yeah um well, well said, Rudyard. Uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote a piece at the Hub uh, that we headlined, Watch Out for the Growing Fault Line Between Public and Private Workers. And I, I took up a framing um, put forward by the Globe and Mail columnist, uh, John Ibbotson, um, in which he described the growing divide between the public class, those who live on the avails of taxation, and the private class, those who pay the taxes. And one worries that this is playing out in the context of this strike. Um, there's so much to say about the demands of, of PSAC. You mentioned, you know, the the calls for wage increases approximating 25% over the next three years, which is extraordinary. And that's on the on top of, as you say, Rudyard, uh, what is a wage premium in the public sector relative to the private sector of a, something approaching uh, between six and and nine percent, and that doesn't even account for the the total compensation um, benefits that uh, that public sector workers receive in the form of job security, health and dental benefits, a defined pension plan, which has basically gone the way of the dodo bird in most of the economy, but remains um, the norm. Um, you know, as many as uh, uh, 87 or 88 percent of public sector workers benefit from defined benefit pension plans. Indexed, so, indexed to inflation. Let's not forget that, which is a hot button issue right now for a lot of workers. It, 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 exactly. And so in that sense, one just can't be can't help but have the feeling that PSAC is is really misreading the political context here. Um, and the fact that the Trudeau government, which has sought to cultivate relationships with the with organized labor really since it was elected in 2015 hasn't um hasn't acquiesced is a set is a sign that even the government itself um thinks that PSAC is is offside the public here and and for that reason I wouldn't be shocked if we're in for something of a protracted strike here okay I well hold on let me come to Stuart on this because Stuart the other argument could be that PSAC has has chosen exactly the right time to launch this strike. Um, 
you know, uh, take it or leave it. There's a, a credible argument in the public out there about inflation eating away at your purchasing power and needing to catch up. But then add on top of that, the fact that this has been a very rough three months for this liberal government. They've been beset with scandals on Chinese election interference. Um, we have uh, issues with the prime minister's penchant for uh, expensive Caribbean vacations at the homes <laughs> of billionaires. This may turn out to be the most expensive vacation ever taken by a Canadian in the history of Canada, if it indeed is a you know, more than just circumstantial to the extent to which this government now has to capitulate to all or a significant portion of these demands. So what's your sense, Stuart? I, I have a feeling that this is pitch perfect for PSAC right now in terms of wedging a government that relies on NDP support. No way that Jagmeet Singh is going to legislate uh, PSAC workers back to the office. Yeah, that's right. And Jagmeet Singh's already said that, that if you were hoping for some kind of a safety valve, some kind of release valve here with back to work legislation, it's not going to happen. And I can't imagine that Pierre Polyev is going to do Justin Trudeau any favors here and help him pass a bill like that. I think the political benefits of Trudeau kind of twisting in the wind are better. So that does leave the only two options are... Um, I guess three options. One is that PSAC says, well, people do hate us. <laughs> so maybe we don't want to go too long here. Um, I think that is maybe weighing on their minds that public opinion is just not on their side. Um, but they but also Stuart, have... let me just challenge that. Do they care? I mean, honestly, yeah. do you care if you are representing a union? Your job is to get pay increases that make up for losses again and purchasing power that were created by inflation that was largely the result of federal government policies and monetary policies during the pandemic, that's outside of PSAC's control. Why don't you just go for it? I mean, wh what do they care? Like, who who's going to bring them to heel? Are you, me, John and Jane Doe public somehow going to say, no, PSAC, we don't like what you're doing. Please don't do this because it's going to reset all the collective bargaining contracts of all the other public uh, sector unions across the country at the provincial and municipal level. Yeah. I, the only thing that I can imagine would bring them into that kind of a mood is their own members. And I think that's unlikely, but I mean, they are having to go out and picket for four hours, which is something they haven't been uh, doing before that. So that also, I think the public opinion could weigh on some people. If you read that citizen piece, you can tell that the idea of people screaming at them as they drive by is just not pleasant uh, for some of these workers. So, you know, maybe a protracted strike and the loss of income that comes along with that. The math starts to not make sense on some of these wage gains. Um, you could imagine some pressure rises that way, but that's a long game. And I think you are correct that if you're Justin Trudeau, you're thinking in more of a short term political situation where you know, I think Pierre Polyev has sort of effectively made the case that a lot of things in Canada are broken right now. This does give you that sense, that kind of broader sense that things aren't going well. Some of these people are in charge of immigration processing. There's issues at the CRA that could arise during tax season. So um, some of these things will bubble up and they become just one more thing that Justin Trudeau has to deal with, whether it's scandals, whether it's just legislation not going through, whether it's signature legislation in the budget, the dental care plan, which isn't even his causing him problems that he didn't even want to, have to deal with in the first place. So there's just so much to deal with. And I think you're right. Once, once the slate gets that full, um, you start to make yeah, deals. I, you I, don't know. I, I just think those are the problems of the prime minister and the government and rank and file union members could care less. Um, 
they're there to get what they're going to get. And I guess, Sean, I want to come to you on this. You know, state capacity is something we've talked a lot about at the Hub over the last year and a bit. You know, there were problems before the pandemic, a payroll system, uh, procurement of military defense systems. Then during the pandemic, you know, problems with passport offices, with those pesky little apps to get us in and out of airports, <laughs> with uh, revelations that hundreds of millions of dollars were being spent on consultants to deliver government policy. You put that all together. Now you layer a strike on top of that shutdowns, as Stuart just described, of key pieces of government infrastructure and public policy. What does this say, Sean, about Canada's state capacity? And I guess I have a worry here, maybe a paranoia that you know, when you flick all the switches off on your fuse box in your house, and then you go to turn it all back on again, you sometimes find that there's a whole bunch of appliances that don't work anymore. And I worry, Sean, that we're flicking the, the, the surge box, the fuse box on and off so many times over the last few years, the strike just the latest, that this is really denuding state capacity, despite an increase of over 30% in the size of the federal public service over the last seven years. So yeah. like, it's demonstrably concerning that you have all this capacity, this new capacity, yet it's not producing state capacity. Yeah, well, well said. Um, <laughs> it's a good example, I think, of, of less is more, right? Um, that, uh, that for all of the increases uh, in the size of the federal public service, I think Canadians will understandably reach the conclusion that we're not getting our our money's worth, which is at the backdrop of this uh, of this uh, uh, strike playing out. Um, I, I would just make a couple of quick points in response to uh, the, the current line of discussion. One thing we discussed last week, guys, was um, the oversized influence that elite opinion has on this government because of the bathwater it swims in. And I, I wouldn't underestimate um, how that may influence how the government thinks about uh, about this strike. I think if the government capitulates with double digit wage increases, we are going to see a real backlash on the, you know, in the Globe and Mail and, and other uh, on Bay Street, etc. Um, and, and so I do think that that is at least one of the birdies on the shoulder of the Prime Minister and the Treasury Board President. The other, of course, being the, the political one that, that you guys have mentioned. The, the second point I'd raise, though, you mentioned that we've been talking a lot about state capacity. Another subject we've been talking a lot about at the Hub is the political realignment, which is uh, the increasing concentration of professional class voters uh, on the center left um, and the shift from the left to the right of working class or blue collar workers uh, in our economy and society. I saw yesterday uh, the head of the Broadband Institute say this is a this is a this strike represents a challenge to Pierre Polyev. Um, is he going to stand up for the working class, which is a bit rich, right? Uh, the majority of PSAC members make between fifty and seventy five thousand dollars a year. That doesn't even account for the rich benefits that we've been talking about. I would just uh, note for listeners and viewers that the median income in Canada is about forty thousand dollars a year. So these people are are not working class in any uh, way, shape or form. And it, it seems to me, if that's how the left is thinking about this issue, that they are standing up for uh, the proletariat, for um, Canada's working class, um, I, again, I think they're misreading the politics on this, particularly in a context in which um, 
you know, we are seeing, uh, we've talked already about um, the increasing demise of defined benefit pension plans in the private sector, um, increasing job precarity in a world in which a lot of people are uh, have multiple jobs, uh, the rise of the gig economy, and so on and so forth. So in that sense, um, you know, you just get the sense that um, the left is is kind of doubled down on the political realignment. Um, and in that sense, is um, really, I think, um, losing touch with the experience of most workers um, uh, in, in the modern economy. Yeah, good, good point, Sean. Uh, to come give you the last kick at the can here, Stuart, you know, I think back to our conversation with, you know, Kevin Chan of Meta, where we discussed, you know, the challenges that Meta and other, you know, large businesses, companies, interests are having these days simply interacting with the federal government in terms of policymaking, the extent to which, you know, what we hear at the hub uh, from a lot of these groups and entities, and you take it through the filter that they're frustrated, you get that, but that they don't feel again, that there's the capacity on the other side to engage with these complex issues. And I just think, you know, what was it guys, a few weeks ago, some of the world's leading authorities on artificial intelligence came forward and wrote a letter saying, we need a six month pause so government can figure out how to put a box around the emergence of thinking machines. And, you know, to me, that that is the right probably response. It's the responsible thing to do. But I just wonder, like, is there a there there? Like on the other side in Canada, could the government right now come up with any kind of intelligent policy, any policy in six months to understand AI, its effects on the economy, its effects on privacy, its effects on national security, wrap a tidy bow around that and pass it back to, you know, corporate Canada and international companies like Meta, Google and others to figure that all out. I just don't think we have that state capacity anymore. <laughs> I think we'll we, have to do it. <laughs> I don't know. Chat GPT-4 is going to write, you know, the government policy <laughs> to 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 legislate and regulate AI. I, I'm joking, but Stuart, this gets serious. Like this is a complex world. This is a high stakes moment with a war in Ukraine, with emergent technologies, with all this stuff going on. We need some government. Like we need smart, efficient, effective government. And instead what we have is five years of, I think demonstrably dwindling state capacity, fiscal deficits for as far as the eye can see, and now a disruptive strike layered on top of that. I'm trying not to be overly pe pessimistic here, Stuart, but you just wonder, whoa, you know, who has the finger in the dam? How is Canada going to power through these big challenges that require a effective functioning federal bureaucracy to execute on? Yeah, I, I think one of the big things that we talked about in the early days and still talk about, and it's something that's sort of like a meta narrative for us at the hub is the idea that, you know, every decision in politics, and I would, you know, it's worth taking a look at the Alberta election and how micro some of these policies are, how much they're, they're aimed at a single riding that might sway, you know, a, a three seat victory. And when you're thinking that small, I think you lose this grander vision of what you actually want to do with the country. And, yes. you know, Robert Aslan has been really good on this. Sean's been really good on this. This is not one 
party. It's not one side of the debate. I think this has just been happening because vote efficiency has become so important. And then the uh, centralization in the PMO, where everything has to go through there, it's tied to this idea that everything has to be tied towards winning some riding before we do it. Um, there's no real thinking. There's no, um, what is our vision for this country and what are we going to do? So anyone who is getting into government now is saddled with these kind of tiny goals. They're not thinking big. Uh, and I think that you're starting to see that. When the pandemic came along, we struggled with that. The only thing we could really do well was just shovel money out the door, which any government can do. Um, we've seen that with every provincial election that's happened in the last year. The go-to move is to send checks to people. And um, I think it is concerning. It's a hard thing to know how to solve because parties want to win elections. But I think Robert has made this case that if someone came to bat with a big idea, a big vision, people might find it inspiring because they just haven't seen that in so long. So I think it's worth a try. Yeah, well said. Okay, we're gonna come right back from this short break and talk about $13 billion going to a uh, VW battery plant in St. Thomas, Ontario. What does this say about, um, you know, the kind of increasing race and competition between Canada and the United States when it comes to public subsidies um, of a scale that really would be hard to imagine even a few years ago? It's reshaping our economy. It's reshaping public finances. We'll bring you that analysis right after this break. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. Okay, guys, second half of the show, let's talk about um, the big news of today, Friday. We've uh, have an announcement coming about a significant public uh, federal expenditure to incentivize uh, VW to come to Canada and build a battery plant in St. Thomas, Ontario. $13 billion, Sean. It was, in a sense, a bidding war, a kind of uh, uh, a race here between the Trudeau government and the Biden administration. We won. <laughs> I guess the question, Sean, is at what price? Um, you've written a lot about industrial policy. I think generally you seem to be someone who does think that there is a role for it. Was this the type of industrial policy that you think Canada should be engaging in? No, the, the short answer is no for, for a few reasons. Um, you know, first of all, at $13 billion a pop, um, this is not a sustainable strategy uh, for Canada's economy. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act in Washington, which you mentioned, Brad, you earmarked something approaching $370 billion um, focused on uh, the energy transition and, and the process of decarbonization. And, um, you know, there's just no way we can compete 
especially when you account for some of the other advantages um, the U.S. has in terms of of um, more flexible labor regime, um, more productive workers, a larger domestic market, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. A uh, couple of other points just worth putting on the table before I, I turn it back over to you guys. We have a really great piece coming out at the Hub next week on this particular deal. And the author makes two really interesting points. The, the first is, if this is a jobs policy, um, it, it's, it's not a great one. Uh, electric vehicle production is less labor intensive than internal combustion engine vehicles. It requires fewer parts, so the downstream benefits are weaker. There's even a case, guys, um, that it's going to be less export oriented because production has to be closer to uh, battery plants. Um, the second point that the author makes is even the underlying goals associated with the electric vehicle transition are um, are poorly conceived. I don't know how many listeners and viewers know this, um, but it is the government of Canada's policy at present that by 2035, 100% of all new vehicles sold in Canada have to be electric vehicles. To put that in some context, guys, today, 13 years um, behind this target, something like 9% is. And so one gets the sense that the Trudeau government realizes there's this enormous gap between its goals and today's realities. And if their idea is that they're going to kind of spend our way to go from 9% to 100%, um, listeners and viewers better hold on to their wallets because that represents a pretty costly proposition. Stuart, what's your uh, take on this? I mean, um, some would say Canada didn't have a choice, right? That the Americans under Biden have engaged in uh, this aggressive industrialization strategy of, you know, picking corporate favorites, of wooing them, um, we were going to lose the auto sector. We're going to lose other key strategic parts of the economy on the basis that we're not willing to get into the live action with our paddle and put it up with the frequency that the Biden administration seems willing to in the current context. Yeah, one sort of general rule that served me well in my journalism career is that when everybody else is doing something, if at all possible, you should probably do the other thing just because. It makes sense. And I think that's what is happening here is we're in this real race to the bottom. And it, it's partly a political thing because, you know, this government has prioritized the green economy. They really don't want to be seen to be left behind. But we had this situation play out in North America not too long ago where Amazon was kind of shopping around for where it would put its headquarters. And the whole spectacle was really unseemly. I think it seemed unseemly to everybody who was watching it, whether you were on the left or the right. If you were a local politician, though, you basically just had to swallow it and jump in and try to get this because you can't be seen to be letting jobs go. And I I do have a little bit of sympathy with the liberal government here because the economic arguments against this, of which they're pretty inarguable, like I, it's hard to find, you know, any newspaper pick it, the Star, the Globe, Canadian Press, they all have at least one economist in their story saying, this doesn't really make sense. <laughs> and uh, that I think that's just a fact. And um, the problem, though, is for this government, letting these jobs go in this industry runs so contrary to what they see themselves as, as and what they want to be. And, you know, Donald Trump came to power making these kind of arguments. You guys let jobs go. I'm going to keep this plant in America. Um, and you could even imagine as much as Pierre Polyev is sort of an old school reform guy 
who likes Margaret Thatcher and Hayek, you could imagine him weaponizing these arguments that these guys let these jobs go south just because they didn't want to compete with Biden. It's not perfect for Polyev, but you could imagine that coming up in a campaign. Can I just weigh in quick? And then I want to hand it to, to Rudyard and, and, and hear his thoughts um, on both the, the this particular um, case of public subsidies, but more broadly, um, you know, the extraordinary degree of market intervention that we're going to have to see to catalyze this energy transition that um, everyone seems to be in favor of. It's just worth emphasizing for listeners and viewers the magnitude of this announcement. Put it put it in context. Over the past 50 years, Bombardier, which is often characterized as the white elephant of corporate welfare, has received something like $4 billion in public subsidies. This is $13 billion to a single company. We don't even know, guys, um, what the $13 billion is buying us. Are these is this plant going to be around for a, a long period of time? What's the, the level of an employment, um, uh, et cetera? And so it, it just it is such a it, by definition, a one off. It can't be part of a kind of coherent industrial strategy because it's not sustainable. Um, yeah, that's a great point. Let me hand it over to you, Rudyard. Yeah, well, I mean, the math is pretty shocking. I mean, if you look at the projected job numbers, i.e. the new positions created, you know, the subsidy could be as much as $5 million per job. <laughs> okay. So you, if I, I don't know if it was me and I was one of those workers, I'd say like, give me half of that as an annuity and I'll just stop working and pay taxes on it. <laughs> like, don't worry about the plant guys. Uh, I'll stay at home. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, I think it goes to something deeper that is a problem both in the Biden administration and here in Canada, is that we have governments who have grown up now with a decade of muscle memory that money, public expenditures are effectively free uh, because of this era of ultra low mm. interest rates. And you're already starting to see that in the United States that debt servicing uh, costs as a share of the U.S. government is greater as a share of U.S. government, not total dollars, as military expenditures. Okay, historically, I was listening to Neil Ferguson on another podcast. He said, you know, that's going back through history. One of the tells of the end of an empire when your debt servicing costs get larger than your military expenditures. And Canada, similarly, projecting deficits out now as far as the eye can see. And to link back to our previous discussion on PSAC and the public uh, federal worker strike, the government's own projections is to add roughly another 20% increase in the federal payrolls over the next five years to bring the total increase over a decade plus to over 50% growth in the federal public service, and then layer let's say annually 4% pay increases on top of that. All of this leads to a very bad place. And, you know, I feel like I, you know, talked on blue in the face about this, but we're not the United States. We don't have the global reserve currency. We don't have the sixth fleet. We don't have an, a, a nuclear arsenal. All those things are what back this exorbitant privilege that the United States enjoys as the world's most successful and dynamic economy for now. We have none of these things. We have, as been reported in the Hub and elsewhere, 
declining possibly per capita GDP in the next couple of years. That's shocking, guys. That is literally a fall in living standards. I mean, to put it simply, that's what that will translate into. And then here we are with another $13 billion, which as you say, Sean, is a beautiful argument, is an important one. It's completely unsustainable. You can't replicate this in Quebec and Alberta or wherever. It just all goes to be, to be this you know, magical money tree that has woven its way so deeply into our politics. And it's on the right as well as the left. And it's woven our way into the public consciousness that all this is possible. You know, what do we spend? $23 billion on uh, residential school survivor compensation. Again, an important issue, compensation required, but suddenly $23 billion had to materialize, $13 billion for this. You know, and those are just two initiatives of literally hundreds I don't know, guys. Uh, I just think this leads at some point to a reckoning, a really painful, what they call in the debt business, a workout. <laughs> and a workout <laughs> is when you sweat, sop sweat, not just you know the casual sweat of jogging down to Starbucks for a latte. Yeah, this is when you're, you know what, in your pants. And it happened to Canada in the 90s. I think we're on that trajectory. It's just a question of when. And it's really a shame because the 90s sucked. I'm old enough. I'm 52. I was around. I remember that. That's when I graduated from university and unemployment was at 11%. Okay. That's my old man Yeah, well, rant we, for the week. I thought we were going to get your rant on the federal public sector strike, um, but you called an audible and and and, and held it for, for this issue. Uh, well done. I would just say, guys, um, the other point worth worth making here is that we actually have a political consensus in Canada around climate change broadly defined, right? The, the major parties share 2030 targets with respect to emissions reduction, and they broadly share the goal, however uh, uh, unclear and, and ambiguous around net zero by 2050. And so the question is, you know, there it's going to be some level of public investment required to get us to those goals. And if, so if you were going to take $13 billion uh, uh, directed towards the goal of addressing climate change, would you have given it to Volkswagen? Wouldn't you have spent it on major public infrastructure like like a national electrification strategy, uh, which would have a much uh, more significant impact on our climate goals and actually have a, a kind of Sean, national- Sean, but it goes back to our last conference. There's no state capacity to do those things. You have to give the money to Volkswagen because Volkswagen will actually do it. Well, there is, agree. you know, you're you're talking about a kind of a parallel universe that doesn't exist. <laughs> maybe, maybe <laughs> that's certainly one line of argument. But the other line of argument um, is that we have this goal of uh, 100% electric vehicles by 2035 that no one really believes uh, is is doable or possible. If it was, there would be tons of stuff happening all over the economy, right? Like I was at an event this week at Concordia University, and one of the speakers said to actually meet the goal of 100% uh, electric vehicles by 2035, we'd actually need to increase our electrification capacity by two or three times um, because of the increased demand on uh, on on electricity. So the, none of that is actually occurring. This target is at this stage 
um, you know, basically completely, uh, com completely unachievable. Everyone, you know, if you were honest about it, would concede it. But the government's not prepared to 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 uh, acknowledge that, and so they throw thirteen billion dollars at Volkswagen, uh, um, you know, effectively to kind of cover up the fact that we don't have a serious plan around uh, 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 around this transition to electric vehicles. They they're not prepared to be honest and upfront with Canadians about the the costs associated with some of these schools, and you just get the sense, guys, that the you know increasingly the climate change agenda, which listeners depending some listeners and viewers may be more committed to um than, than others it's just not serious and and maybe maybe that's a a kind of meta point that it reflects the lack of seriousness that Stuart was talking about at the first part of our conversation kind of animating our our policy making across a whole range of areas yeah we've never met our climate ghg reduction targets since uh since Paris, except the year of the pandemic when the economy was closed down for other reasons aside from anything to do with climate policy. Stuart, I want to give you the last word in today's podcast. What can we expect uh, next week in the Hub? What do you have dialed up? It was a, a banner week this past week. All kinds of our new contributors writing for us. Trevor Toom, a great piece. Uh, on and on and on. Malcolm Jolly's uh, wine column today, Friday. Must read. Um, Richard Samuka on Haiti. Uh, busy, busy week at the Hub. You'll get your best of the Hub Saturday morning and our new fancy uh, template. So enjoy that, uh, Hub listeners. Yeah, next week, I we have Joanna Barron on the Canby decision. And um, it's self-recommending, but she also sent the email and said, warning, it's a bit salty. So I think that should make people want to read it even more. Um, I've got a piece on the future of the liberal governing agreement, which I think will be, I haven't seen this angle put out there yet. So I'm excited to get it out there. Uh, and then the piece Sean mentioned about these subsidies, I think uh, that's the kind of thing that I think will make our readers happy. Excellent. Well, look guys, uh, enjoy the weekend. Uh, we'll turn to our hub emails uh, tomorrow, Saturday. Again, a new template will be showing off for you. And then Monday through Friday, uh, per diem, enjoy. And we'll do this all again next Friday, the Hub Roundtable, exclusively for you, our Hub community. Until then, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, Executive Director of the Hub, saying goodbye, be well, see you next Friday. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, the Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granosky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.